0: Hello friends, very, very happy new year to all of you and a Merry Christmas, even though we're past the octave of Christmas formally at the time of this recording. Um, nevertheless, we're still in Christmas tide. That doesn't come to an end until 40 days from Christmas Day, which is going to be on February 2nd. So uh, so yeah, for the record, Merry Christmas to everybody listening. Hope you had an incredible time uh, break with family and with God and attending liturgies and services and just taking a moment to reflect. Certainly I did. Went on a really cool road trip with my wife uh, to Utah and Nevada and parts of Arizona, and it was a lot of fun. No agenda, no planning. Uh, just driving and visiting, and whenever we saw something interesting, we stopped and pulled over to the side of the road, and shout out to my deacon brother Glenn and his wife Rose for um, giving us a spot to stay and post up in Nevada and do some, uh, some hiking and adventuring uh, during that week. But anyway, uh, Happy New Year, Merry Christmas to all of you. We actually don't have an episode with a guest this week. In fact, I thought about not even having an episode recording this week. The, 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 the whole issue, the vagaries of holiday scheduling meant that we'd have a gap in recording. We actually we're actually going to be starting recording again this week, but we didn't have an episode slated for release today. You can always do like a best of episode or something along those lines, which we've done in the past, but I thought just not having an episode this week. And then the thought hit me that there's been a couple of very important events that have happened over the last you know several weeks during during the holidays that I've gotten lots of questions about, and um, I thought I'd just give you my perspective on them. And they're very different, and some would say are very different in orders of magnitude and kind and degree not just different in terms of the fact that they're two different things they're just you know very different things but nevertheless i wanted to maybe share a little bit of my my perspective on both of them during the course of this episode, this is my first episode of doing it solo, I'm doing it by myself. So we'll see how good a conversationalist I am when there's nobody else in the room. And the two events that I want to chat with you about are number one, the passing of our Pope Emeritus Benedict, which you know happened just last week. In fact, today is Wednesday when I'm recording this. Uh, the show may come out as early as tomorrow, Thursday, the fifth, uh, which is actually the funeral of the funeral date for Pope Benedict. In In Rome, a mass will be presided by uh, Pope Francis himself and there's all different kinds of of things liturgically that happen upon the death of, of a prelate to begin with of any bishop. Uh, but you can imagine there probably will be some extra touches and flourishes for Pope Benedict, and that's uh, that's a good thing, I think. So I want to talk about the passing of the great Pope Benedict. And then secondly, I'd like to talk, because I've gotten questions about this, about my perspective on the laicization or the return to the lay state of formerly Father Frank Pavone, uh, which was something that certainly has been all over social media. I know that it's caused uh, you know a lot of uproar in certain sectors of the church, and in. Others for maybe different reasons, similar um, uh, you know perspectives and points of view, uh, or maybe not similar perspectives and points of views, but a lot of uh, a lot of you know opinions. Uh, on either side of this issue. And so I wanted to, to, to just reflect a little bit on both of those topics since they're all very recent in, um, in the last several weeks and uh, since, since I have a perspective on both of them. So anyway, this probably won't be a super long uh, episode, but in any case, I wanted to share some thoughts with you. So let's start with Pope Benedict. Now, You know, Pope Benedict is is a person who's, you know, written a tremendous amount and taught a tremendous amount. In fact, there's a meme going around that I saw on social media, you know, it said something like thousands of essays, um, you know, 60 plus books, uh, you know, countless homilies and lectures and teachings and encyclicals and, um, you know, apostolic exhortations and all of that. But the meaningfulness of that body of work when compared with his final words, which were in German, uh, ich liebe dich, Jesus, right? So I love you, Jesus, or Jesus, I love you. And I wish I remembered how to say Jesus in German, but I don't. In any case, when you compare that huge body of work to the fact that his three final words were I love you to Jesus, it really shows you where the heart of this man was and what a great... You know, what a great hope we can all have to die with that name on our lips, to die with the name of Jesus on our lips because we're going to be meeting him <laughs> a second afterwards. So it might make sense to, to uh, to you know, call out his name at that moment. I thought that was really interesting. But obviously Pope Benedict is a extraordinary theolo- – was an extraordinary theologian. An extremely learned person uh, on matters of God, on matters of uh, the Church, on ecclesiology, on eschatology, on you know every manner of apologetic, um, every manner of uh, evangelical you know tool and resource and opportunity, and just he's a guy who we're going to be unpacking his teachings for, I believe, centuries to come. Uh, I've already prayed to him on a number of occasions. Um, I hope we might see a miracle attributed to him soon and that he is on his path to canonization himself, which, you know, in the church's way can take a very, very long time. But in any case, somebody who we're going to be unpacking for centuries. Now, just to give you some perspective on him now, you know, obviously he was— elected uh, Pope or Bishop of Rome in 2005, in the early part of 2005, in April. So he's somebody who, in my memory hits me from a very adult perspective, right? So this was not that long ago. And he was the first pope that I really recall having a kind of personal relationship with out in the, in the sort of sphere of everyday life, right? Uh, pope John Paul II, um, not as much because, uh, you, you know, he was somebody who, as I matured in my Catholic identity, was towards the very end of his um, of his, you know, time here on earth. And obviously another, an incredible uh, figure in his own right, but Pope Benedict, because you know, he was elected in 2005. My kids were really young. In fact, one of them was just a newborn practically at that time. And I was going through a lot of very interesting faith, you know, moments. He always uh, sticks out in my memory as, as someone of high visibility within a very important time for me. There's two things that I'd like to share specifically about him that come to mind. And these are things that I've frankly, preached on, uh, especially one of them, many, many times, that among the 60-plus books and thousands of essays and millions of homilies stand out to me in a very specific way. One of them actually comes from his installation mass in April of 2005, literally, you know, his words that he spoke at his, as, as a first, you know, at, at, in his first mass, essentially, as the um, Pope of the Universal Church And I'm going to read this quote, but there's obviously a ton to unpack here. And he said during that installation, Mass, we are not some casual and meaningless product of evolution. Each of us is the result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. The idea that all of us, each of us individually is an original thought of God God's great idea—I've kind of embellished his quote in my preaching a number of different ways—but just that fundamental point: that God, at some moment, the Trinity, in its eternal wisdom and you know divine intelligence, at some moment in time—in time as we understand it—had a thought of Charlie, or a thought of you know Bill, or Jose, or whoever it is right, had a thought, an original thought of a person and said, yeah, that's a great idea, is something that really brings into quick focus the fact that we have, first of all, an awesome God, but a God with such intentionality that gives our lives so much purpose because we're not accidental. We're not just the product of some evolutionary process or, as my friend um, called it sometimes, electrified meat, right? We're definitely not Just these bodies sort of, you know, bouncing around uh, aimlessly in the universe by virtue of some cosmic accident. But we're willed, we're thought of individually, and we're created and made for a purpose and with a reason and with all of the dignity and character of a child of God. And that is an extraordinary thought. I mean, it's something that you can dive into in so many different ways and honestly gives me a tremendous amount of comfort to think about. I know the times that I've preached about it and I attribute, you know, the idea obviously to him, but just how new it seems to hit people when they hear it, that they are an original idea of God, that God thought that they would be a great idea. It really, really does help to bring into focus that each of us has a vocation, yes, and we're going to talk a little bit about vocation in the next subject, but each of us has a defined mission, a reason, a plan, a role to play in God's salvific plan of history, and that we can't take that for granted because we're not accidental. We're willed. And so very powerful quote from him that has meant so much to my life, and I think by extension, a lot of people where I've preached that concept— the other one comes from Pope Benedict's *Spes Salvi. And some of you perhaps have read that, um, that document. And if you haven't, it's available on the Vatican website. Maybe we'll add a link in the show notes in the event you haven't read it. But really fantastic, deep document. And in it, uh, there are some sections devoted to the idea of purgatory. And Pope Benedict, like others before him, and certainly since the writing of uh, Space Salvi, mentions and kind of keys in on 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. And for those of you who are not familiar with that verse, I'll read it really quickly, but it's a verse that's often used in some cases as a proof text from a Catholic apologetic perspective for the existence of purgatory. And 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15 says, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, "...precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become manifest. For the day, which is the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss." though he himself will be saved but only as through fire now again that text from 1 corinthians 3 has been used in a way as a proof text for the uh, you know kind of biblical you know uh, relevance of the concept of purgatory and again that's used mostly in apologetic circles because when we're you know talking in apologetic circles depending on who we're talking to they're often going to look for biblical evidence of a theological concept like purgatory. So it's used quite a bit in that context. And the idea is St. Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is really talking about the idea that everyone's work is basically built on a foundation. And he's suggesting that the foundation to build your work upon, to build your your, your everyday you know, ministry and mission upon is the foundation of Jesus Christ. And you build on that foundation with a bunch of different material, with gold, with silver, with precious stones, but you also build, you can build with wood and hay and straw. And everybody's work is going to become manifest, right? When the day of judgment comes, we're all going to see all the things that we've done. And it's going to be revealed with fire. That's the introduction of this idea of fire. And that the fire is going to test the work that everybody has done. And if our work built on that foundation of Jesus Christ survives, then we're going to receive a reward. Now, of course, you can read into that, that the reward is the gift of the beatific vision. The fact that we all get to see God face to face and enter the kingdom of heaven, essentially. But then the other part, the last part of it is the really interesting part, because it says if any man's work is burned up. Right so think about the materials of hay and straw and wood and some of the kind of cheaper stuff right if that stuff gets burned up right which is work that maybe is not you know built on the foundation of Christ but is not the best work right so it's not you know necessarily the the the, the greatest exemplar uh, or or example of the fullness of what we're supposed to do if that stuff gets burned up we're going to suffer or the person is going to suffer loss but then it says, though he himself will be saved. So this person is not lost, right? So this isn't hell that's being talked about, or you know, the end of of, of a relationship with God. That person's still going to be saved, but only as through fire. So that idea of purgatory is, you know, becomes from a Catholic perspective very clear to see that you know we've we have the effects of. Of sin, of temporal the temporal punishment due to sin that's still on our on our souls, any attachments that we might have when we die, even though we've been forgiven by God through the sacrament of confession and we've received healing and grace and everything. Nevertheless, there's you know, there's a cost to pay to having our attachments. There's a purification that's needed for those different attachments. And in 1 Corinthians, St. Paul talks about that purification being as if somebody going through fire. And so Pope Benedict, in and Space Alvi talks and extends upon that idea of fire. And he actually says that the fire which burns and saves us is Jesus himself, right, as an encounter with Jesus Christ. And that, that, that teaching always really, you know, meant so much to me because I imagine this— you know, what could be, you know, painful and not desirable, right? Because they say you shouldn't, we shouldn't desire purgatory. We should desire heaven because purgatory is going to hurt. Okay. To say it, you know, one way it's going to hurt. So what could be, you know, in a way painful but in a way also good and light and desirable. And and it it always been a struggle for me to imagine what that could be. But Pope Benedict tells us in Space Salvi that that is an encounter with the fire of Jesus Christ himself. And he goes on to say that before his gaze, all falsehood melts away. This encounter with him, as it burns us, transforms and frees us, allowing us to become truly ourselves. Beautiful teaching. And you can see that. You can imagine that in, that image of the refiner's fire, right? The Old Testament uh, ideas of burning up the dross and all the like little fragments and different things that are in the silver or in the gold as it's being, you know, fashioned and made. All that stuff gets burned up through this fire. And uh, Pope Benedict continues, all that we build during our lives can prove to be mere straw, bluster, and it collapses. Yet in the pain of this encounter, so there is some pain, When the impurity and sickness of our lives becomes evident to us, there lies salvation. His gaze, the touch of his heart, heals us through an undeniably painful transformation as through fire, but it is a blessed pain in which the holy power of his love sears through us like a flame, enabling us to become totally ourselves and thus totally of God. I mean... Who writes like that? It's just incredibly beautiful. So that reflection on purgatory as being an embrace with Jesus himself and being just burned up of all of the attachments and imperfections of our lives. Because remember, my brothers and sisters, even if we're forgiven for something, there still are the temporal effects of our sin, right? The old example that's often given is like, you know, you break a window with a baseball right? And you go over to the person's house and you say, hey, I'm so sorry. I threw this baseball through your window. And the person says, it's okay. Accidents happen. I forgive you. Well, guess what? Even though you've been forgiven, there's still broken glass on the floor. It still needs to be swept up. Somebody needs to pay for a new window. Somebody might need to go get a job to earn the money to pay for a new window. So there's all of these things that are attached to that sin in air quotes of breaking the window with the baseball that need to be made right because God is all about bringing things into their right state. That's what judgment really is. Judgment is making things right. And so the idea of purgatory makes total logical sense of the purification that all of us I mean it's certainly me for sure for starters, but but I would think all of us require that are the effects of living an imperfect life. Now, some people, I am convinced, even though this is not like an official church teaching, but I'm convinced that some people actually get that opportunity to be purified on this earth. You know, we all have heard examples of people who suffer long illnesses, um, et cetera who go through extraordinary difficulties and pain while they're still alive, and yet they are peaceful, docile, beautiful souls, right? Those people may be experiencing that purifier's fire or that refiner's fire, you know, on this plane. So they may not need to experience it in the next. But a lot of us, starting with me, a lot of us are going to need some purification from attachments that we have, even if we've received the forgiving love of God through the sacrament of confession. So makes perfect sense to me. And that's the second thing that I wanted to share about Pope Benedict. So those two teachings on the originality of each of our lives as an original thought of God and the beautiful, powerful purification that we can expect and experience in the purification process of purgatory should we need that purification step. And so I'll leave this segment on Pope Benedict there. There's so much more that can be said. And of course, many will say much about this great man, but that's my small contribution to the patrimony of the great Pope Emeritus Benedict. Now, switching gears, and again, very different gears, but switching gears to the subject of um, the former father, Frank Pavone, who was laicized, again, returned to the lay state through a decree from the the Vatican, just you know, days ago, really, I think it was last week. I don't have the exact date in front of me, but that's not the point. Now, laicizations, or returning to the lay states, lay state are rare from a kind of global perspective, right? Um, in Los Angeles, as an example, there's a thousand priests in LA, and you know, there might be one or two here or there. You know, not even necessarily every year, but it, it happens from time to time but the, but they're relatively rare. A lot of the times when they happen is, there's a variety of, cir- of circumstances for it, but it usually happens with, you know, some voluntary participation from the priest in question. So a person, you know, you, you hear about these cases where maybe somebody discerns a call to married life and, you know, you, you or you fall in love and you you, you ask to be Freed of your um, ecclesial obligations, there are situations like that. There's other situations that are harder. You know, situations that invo- that involve running afoul of the law, or um, you know, some other canonical issue or canonical crime. Those things happen as well, but thank God that these are not, you know, by and large common things, but they do happen, and the and the church has a series of provisions in canon law that deal explicitly with this section, or with this issue, rather, and so it's not like we haven't experienced it or seen it. What makes this case really interesting is the fact that you have a very high-profile priest, a priest like uh, Frank Pavone, who was— um, you know, in pro-life work for decades and very visible on media, television, social media, et cetera, Um, and, you know, obviously in church circles was was somebody who was very, very visible. And, you know, what he did in Priests for Life uh, in the organization that he ran and throughout his a time in pro-life ministry is nothing if not commendable in terms of the effects that it's had. I would cite a couple of examples um, and I, and I want to sort of issue all this broadly as a disclaimer because th- this like with any other issue is, is a complex one. It's a nuanced one. That has a lot of ways that you can look at it. I have a d- definite opinion, and I'm going to share it with you. But we can't just say, "Oh, he's really good," and the Vatican did him, a dir- you know, a dirty deed. Nor can we say, uh, "Oh, well, the Vatican, you know, uh, everything that, that that we've heard against Father uh, Frank Pavone is cause or reason enough to kind of not discuss this, the subject, um, you know, any further." There are, like with anything in life, there's a number of different nuanced and complex things to consider. We're not going to dive into all of them, but I'll touch on a few of them in this. And I I want to be, you know, fair and respectful and everything else, despite what ultimately my perspective is on this issue. You know, uh, Father Frank, or formerly Father Frank, uh, now Frank Pavone, Uh, Did a lot of really good work, uh, both in terms of Rachel's Vineyard, where he was the, uh, I believe, the chaplain or pastoral director of that organization. An organization that I have firsthand experience with because my wife attended a Rachel's Vineyard retreat to heal from her um, post-abortive pain and trauma. My wife has told her story actually on this show and elsewhere, but uh, if you never heard that, she uh, did have an abortion when she was 18 years old. Uh, And suffered greatly in life by virtue of carrying that pain and that wound with her. And it was a Rachel's Vineyard retreat that actually helped her a great deal to, um, to get past that pain. So a lot of good work there. And a lot of good work with uh, Priest for Life as an organization, helping people understand what abortion is and also helping people heal from that. So all good there. I would further mention that I've had the opportunity of meeting Frank Pavone on a number of occasions. In fact, I actually emceed a pro-life event where he was the keynote speaker and introduced him to the audience and all that stuff. And he was always very cordial and very nice to me. I don't know that he'd remember me if you said my name to him, but somebody who I just you know had nice interactions with. On the few occasions that I met him, so all of that is is good, and I wanted to make sure to, to mention that. And no doubt that you can't summarize a priest's, uh, you know, priesthood in in just a few minutes. But there's probably countless good things that um, he'd done in ministry, pro life, and otherwise throughout his time. Uh, not the least of which is offering the sacraments, of course, to uh, to you know maybe thousands of people over the over the years. So all of that's very good. But now this incident of laicization comes up and, you know, you have to dig into the details here. But by and large, the reason that uh, the Vatican claims for his laicization is for blasphemous statements and for consistent disobedience to his lawful superiors, basically his bishop or bishops, plural as has been the case. And those are super serious things, both of them. Blasphemy, number one. And number two is consistent disobedience. Those are definitely um, canonical issues and you know, spoiler alert, I'm not a canon lawyer, but if you had one here, he would tell you the same. Um, Those are not light things. Those are big time things. Um, You know, especially the one about disobedience to your bishop. And if that is repeated and consistent, it's even worse, right? Everybody has disagreements with folks and they might see things a different way, but this was something different. So, in order to kind of get at what the details were, I actually went to um, Frank Pavone's website because he actually lists a chronology on his website that talks about all the issues that he claims has ha- have happened. And you know, to, to for me, as a high level summary of my perspective on this, is the confusion of vocation with mission. I think that kind of sums up. My thoughts on why Frank Pavone finds himself in the situation that he finds himself because, and, and even though I haven't said it. F- what a a priest that is returned to the lay state means is that he loses all of his faculties to actually perform his priestly ministry. So can't celebrate the sacraments, can't call himself father, can't wear clerical attire, you know, that kind of thing. Um, He basically returns to being a lay person or to the lay state. Can't say a lay person because that's the tricky thing about ordination is once you're ordained to the priesthood, ontologically, you're always a priest. In other words, what happens to your soul doesn't get undone. It's like baptism or, you know, the reception of other sacraments. It's taken place. So your soul is marked in a way, right? Confirmation does the same thing. It marks your soul in a different way and it can't be undone. The mark is indelible according to the catechism. But you can lose your right and ability to actually perform your duties and ministry as a priest, and that's precisely what's happened here. So uh, Frank Pavone can no longer celebrate the sacraments, the masses. He can't call himself father, uh, and he can't wear a Roman collar and things like that that identify him with the Catholic Church. And that's – you can imagine what a big deal that is um, you know, to, to a priest and to many, many other people. But I went to his site to look at his chronology of all the things he claims and I really do think that summarizing it as a confusion between vocation and mission, mission is a really kind of a, a thumbnail way of describing the issue here. A couple things that I'd mention about what that is: uh, Frank Pavone talks about his uh, you know ordination originally as a priest in the '80s in New York under Cardinal O'Connor and how um, he was assigned at a regular parish and had years of you know big parish experience and did a lot of things that parish priests do every day. And that at some point, he started to discern a call within a call. And that, that call within a call was this idea of the um, pro-life work on a full-time basis. Now here, and there's people who will maybe quibble with me, but I think there is the beginning of some of the issues that have since transpired. And by the way, this has been going on these issues with Father uh, uh, or former Father uh, Frank Pavone have been going on for decades. That's the other thing. I mean, this stuff really began to happen in 2000, 23 years ago, that all of these things have begun to take place that have led to what happened just a few days ago uh, with, the, with the decree from the Vatican. So this is not new stuff. It's been going on for quite a long time. And what Frank Pavone says is that at that time, when he heard this call within a call, he went to Cardinal O'Connor, his bishop, to basically ask him if he could do this full-time pro-life work, uh, you know, all the time. Basically, stop being a parish priest and dedicate his efforts 100% to pro-life ministry. Now – before I give you the answer of what his bishop said, um, it's important to recognize that this, this idea of a call within a call you might see a lot in a monastic setting right so I have personal experience with this too because my my brother, my blood brother, is a monk. And he first heard, his first calling was to the monastic life. And then within that, he heard a call to the priesthood. So this idea of a call within a call is something like that. We have a call, like a a vocation, right, which is uh, the call from God to live a particular way of life. Now, usually that way of life is married life, single life, the priesthood, religious life. That's pretty much it. And then we might hear another call within that, which I identify as a mission. But as, again, part of the, the reason why I think uh, Frank Bavone finds himself in the situation he does is he viewed that as a sort of second vocation, right? So I've been called to the priesthood. That's the vocation. That's my way of life. But now I have another vocation, which is to pro-life work full-time. And I think that's the beginning of this big thing for, you know, this big disagreement that he subsequently had with a number of bishops and where he finds himself today is that I don't believe that that truly is a vocation. I believe that that is an extraordinarily important mission and an area of ministerial focus, et cetera, maybe an area of personal focus, maybe, you know, 24, 23 of the 24 hours of the day you want to spend thinking, writing, talking, sharing social posts about this particular area. That's fine, but it doesn't constitute, to my mind, another vocation. A vocation is the way of life that God gives us. Think of it as like the avenue that he's giving us to travel. You're either going to go by train, by plane, by car, by foot, right? It's like it's the way that you're going to travel. But then within that, he gives you a mission. You're going to stop at this town. You're going to get off on this exit. You're going to wear this particular kind of clothes. You're going to do all these different things that are within that vocation. But the idea of having multiple vocations is something that I think leads to a lot of challenges, which no doubt are the case here. And I totally understand also that if you believe you have another vocation in the true sense, it's kind of like if somebody asked you to stop being married to your wife or stop being married to your husband, right? Or to stop being a father, maybe. There are things that are at your nat- at the natural level, right? It's something that I can't undo. And so for Frank Pavone, if he really does believe that pro-life ministry is a vocation, then somebody saying, don't do this pro-life ministry full-time might have you know sounded to him like stop being married to so and so and something that in what he calls good conscience he couldn't stop doing but to me it's something very different it's something that is missional which is very important but missions can change, evolve, or they can be reshaped. It can be the same mission, but in a different way. And I think that could have been some of the guidance that if I would have been in a situation to give him any guidance 23 years ago, I would have probably encouraged him to think about, right? Because it's not that somebody was necessarily asking him not to do pro-life work, but it was that somebody wasn't asking him to do pro-life work in a particular way under a particular organization, et cetera. And that seems to be what comes out, even in his own chronology that he has on, um, on his website. Anyway, just to kind of fast forward here Because otherwise this can get too long Uh, He gets the okay from Cardinal O'Connor Cardinal O'Connor says, yep, go forward and go ahead Now in 2000, Cardinal O'Connor dies And the new bishop of New York is uh, Cardinal Egan, Bishop Egan I don't know if he was a cardinal at his his uh, installation in New York, or if he became one after that. But again, not the point of this uh, reflection. Uh, but in any case, at some point, he you know has a new superior, a new bishop, a new. A lawful authority. And that is the case in the, you know, in the in the clerical life. We have superiors. My superiors are as a deacon, you know, ultimately is the Archbishop of Los Angeles, who at this moment is Archbishop Jose Gomez. But he won't always be the Archbishop of Los Angeles. And whoever the next man that replaces him, that will be. My lawful authority and I at the time of ordination like any deacon, priest or bishop does makes a promise to obey his superior or their successor and their successors by the way. So it's not just a superior but and their successors and a bishop cannot bind the hands of his successor right not even popes can do that not unless they're 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 teaching or promulgating something as you know technically in an ex cathedra way meaning that they're promulgating something that now becomes really part of the deposit of faith right but you can't bind your successor's hands. You can't say, well, you know, I like to celebrate, uh, you know, the, the Easter vigil this way, and now every subsequent bishop is going to have to abide by it. They don't. They can change what they do. Uh, that successor can do things in a different way, and that's precisely what happened here. Now, there's a lot of reasons that Frank Pavone gives as to why this is happening. You know, they don't support my pro-life work. Uh, you know, uh, they didn't like me f- from before, like a, a bunch of different reasons, but I, I, I don't even think Think it's important to get into those rationale, and I don't think it's important to even get into the fact that I'm sure that you know somebody down at some deanery meeting or chancery office or whatever treated uh, Frank Pavone at some point in his 23 years uncharitably. I can completely believe that, but I don't think it matters. I think it's neither here nor there. The fact that he went to his the successor of his original bishop and then asked him, "Hey, can I keep doing this?" and at some point that bishop said no. I don't want you to keep doing this uh, pro-life work. I want you to focus on X. And at that point, Frank Pavone details, you know, very long on his website, the way that he responded to that meeting with his then-bishop Uh, Cardinal Egan. And he basically says to him that, you know, in good conscience, he could not walk away from full-time pro-life work. And why would he want to? That's a direct quote. In conscience, I could not walk away from full-time pro-life work. And why would this new bishop want me to? That, my friends, is really tricky ground. That is a sort of uh uh-oh moment because the reasons why— your new bishop may want you to focus your ministerial energy in a different direction could relate to a thousand different reasons. And frankly, none of them really matter because he is the lawful authority. And, you know, he's not giving you an immoral order. He's asking you to focus your ministerial energies in a particular way. Even his motivation for doing it doesn't matter. What matters is the fact that this is your lawful authority and he's asking you to do something. So for him to deny that, for him to say that he couldn't, he want that, that, you know, I know you want me to do parish work, but I'm just not going to, that is the beginning of all of these issues. And what that's called is that's called disobedience. Now, Frank Pavone, you know, explains that he believes in obedience, but doesn't believe in, you know, in, unjust authority, doesn't believe in abusive authority, uh, et cetera, And he gives all of his explanations, which you can read for yourself. But nevertheless, when a bishop tells a cleric in his diocese, I'd like for you to do this kind of ministerial focus, and you just say no, and he insists, and you continue to say no, you fall out of obedience with your superior. And they can do it nicely, they can do it not nicely, they can do it with a lot of emotion, or they can do it in an emotionless way. And frankly, all of those things don't really matter. They're not necessary, they're not essential to the issue um, at hand. Uh, Frank Pavone goes on to explain that he understands the concept of authority and obedience. But, and this is a quote, when I saw how Cardinal Egan refused to engage in a conversation about my pro-life calling, there's the, that, that vocation again, which Cardinal O'Connor had nurtured and which he even suggested could lead to a new community of priests, and when I was told that Cardinal Egan wasn't even obliged to give me a reason why he was asking me to step away from my work for the unborn, I objected. So he objected. He said no. No. Now, bear in mind, this was the year 2000 when this happened. Eventually, this would lead to him making a request of the Diocese of New York to transfer to another diocese where he could have a supportive bishop, which he did, transferring to the Diocese of Amarillo, Texas. There's a whole story there. The original bishop was Bishop Yanta, then replaced by another bishop, the bishop who is currently um, there now, Bishop Zurich, I believe is his name, but you know, all along, all of this really stemmed from that initial objection to focus ministerial energy in a different way. And that is the crux of the issue. The other thing that, and I believe that's wrong for the record, I think that we have to listen to our superiors in the, the life of, of, of faith, in the clerical state especially. Because there is even you know, in cases where we might not understand why somebody's asking us to do something, God can do great things with that obedience. God can do amazing things with that. Frank Pavone goes on to say, he, you know, he kind of asks uh, rhetorically, In his on his website about, you know, what did he expect me to do? Go back to the parish and basically, you know, preach on, uh, you know, hey, this thing that I was really talking about, about the importance of the abortion issue and all that, that's no longer important. And he does all these kind of tongue in cheek references to what was I supposed to do as a regular parish priest? And I think that that's really unfortunate for a number of reasons. The first of which is it kind of makes – it relegates the parish priesthood to some sort of like inconvenient secondary thing that's not as important as you know international pro-life work. And that's just not true. the The, the parish, as my own pastor reminds me constantly, is the most important organization on the planet. Every parish is because from that altar – flows the graces of God in a particular time and place and a particular time and place for each one of us, right? And we're not there by accident because God's, you know, God's got this and he's thought about this from the very beginning. So there really is no more important place than the parish. And so it it bothers me that the idea of being, having a parish assignment gets relegated to the sort of second class citizen or, you know, second fiddle sort of thing. That's number one. And the other thing that, that uh, bugs me about it is that there there's no assumption by anyone that that uh, pro-life work couldn't be continued in a parish setting. And who knows, through a homily in a parish, maybe you inspire 10,000 pro-life leaders to kind of come up and do the work that you were doing before. We have no idea what God could do and can do with that, um, that type of obedience. So I think that that response um, by Frank Pavone to his original to his uh, sorry, the successor to his original bishop uh, was incorrect. I think his understanding of vocation is uh, to pro-life ministry is incorrect. I think that that is a mission that he feels very strongly about that can be reshaped and refocused and retooled in a variety of different ways based on competent authority, which a bishop obviously is. There's a lot of other things that Frank Pavone talks about, about being mistreated, about being lied about, you know, a variety of things. And you know what? I I don't want to give an opinion on any of those things because I just don't know. I don't have enough data. But let's assume that those things are all true. Let's assume that he has been lied about and lied to. And let's assume that people have not treated him very generously or, you know, very charitably. Let's assume that all those things are true. At the end of the day, fundamentally, what remains is very documentable, even by his own words, disobedience to his lawful superiors. And that's something we just can't do. That's a big no-no in the church for good reason. And the most important reason is for the benefit of our own souls, right? Because God may be trying to teach us something through that obedience. And there's countless, millions of examples in the saints before us to show that kind of obedience, sometimes against you know, against our better intentions, right? The stories of the great saints who really wanted to do X, but they were told to do Y. Uh, you know, St. Francis is an example, the great deacon who, you know, really loved to preach. That's what he wanted to do. And, you know, you, you couldn't preach in a lot of settings um, unless you were ordained. And so he became a deacon precisely to be able to preach, right, because he was shut out of places to preach prior to that, right? And he obeyed um, Mother Teresa, tons of examples of obedience of things that, you know, were not in her desire or she didn't, she didn't desire them to be the case, but nevertheless, she obliged I mean, there's really countless examples uh, from the lives of the saints where, you know, people have gone through personal difficulties out of obedience, but God makes those things good in the end. The other big issue that's cited by the Vatican, and I'll end it here, is the issue of blasphemy. Uh, This relates to a very specific, at least one very specific issue. And there's a number of social media commentaries and posts which could also be brought uh, as part of this kind of blasphemy, but the but the significant incident of blasphemy was a video that happened where there was the body of a aborted child in basically a you know like a glass jar that was placed on an altar top where mass was often celebrated uh, and where a Frank Pavone gave a a talk, you know, did a video essentially. Now that altar was not an altar in the sense of something fixed that's in a church, but it was a table that was very often used for mass in these same videos. So for all intents and purposes, for anybody watching, that was an altar. Now Frank Pavone makes claims that that really wasn't an altar, that it was used for mass and that, you know, he probably shouldn't have put it there, but it's not the same thing as an altar. That's a little bit of, uh, you know, sort of splitting hairs because the reality of it is, is a place where you celebrate mass is an altar for all intents and purposes, especially if that image is publicized to thousands of people who are looking at it in that context. So anyway, placing of that body uh, on that altar, even if the intent was to do something positive and to show people the horrors of abortion, was something that desecrated and violated the dignity of that baby And something that scandalized many people. Now, other people on the other side of the equation would say, well, we need to have these super bold, you know, images and symbols so that people can understand what exactly we're dealing with. And I understand that. But nevertheless, it doesn't change the essence of what happened. And the essence of what happened is that you had a body which is due respect and dignity. And there's all kinds of canon codes about this was not given that that type of reverence. And it was used to make a point. There's all kinds of other uh, issues that the bishops uh, talk about in their letters, which are public now uh, and available to view online, about Frank Pavone taking uh, very partisan political positions. Everybody has their ideologies and everybody has their perspectives, but the church has very clear uh, canonical restrictions around partisan politics and even clerics participating in political life. There's actual canons that are expressly prohibit, you know, clerics like running for office or, or doing things like that. So the intermingling of partisan politics with the clerical state is a very, very challenging proposition for anybody. Um, and that doesn't change the fact that we all have our, you know, ideological perspectives. Perspectives on things, but that is not the cleric's or you know chief role is to promote his own political opinion, um, but to really advance the teachings of the Catholic faith and to do so with truth and with clarity and with charity and all those different things. So, but that blasphemy uh, charge is principally rooted in that um, example of that child's body being displayed in that video. And that's a, a hard bell to unring when it happens. So my opinion, again, is I think it's a very sad thing. Um, I think it does come at a cost to you know pro-life efforts in this country. But nevertheless, I believe it's the right uh, decision to have taken place because the root of it all is um, disobedience to lawful uh, authorities. And that's not something that we can have uh, in the church, my brothers and sisters, and there's good reason for it, right? We're called to be obedient to God and to be obedient to God's church. And sometimes we'll understand the reasons why we're being asked to do certain things. Sometimes we'll really like them. Other times we'll be neutral about them. Other times we may not really like them. But we're being asked to do them by our lawful authority, and we have to respect that and follow that, you know, to the end, and God will reward us and God will make good from those decisions. I'm sure there's a ton more to say, but that's just a thumbnail sketch on my perspective on both of these kind of Catholic moments over the last uh, several weeks. And I invite you to, uh, to, you know, send me some comments. Let me know uh, what you think about these uh, situations and we can maybe talk further about them or bring them up with our next guest uh, on the show. So with that, I'll give you uh, a quick uh, blessing and I wish that 2023 be the most extraordinary year you've ever had in your entire life, and that you do everything possible to pray, to live an integrated Catholic life, wherever you are in your uh, particular walk of faith and in your way of life that God has picked out for you. So Heavenly Father, I ask for your blessing upon this listening audience, that your will be done in their lives, and that they carry forward your message in the time and place, in the moment, and in the way that you've called them to. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, the Lord. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember to subscribe to this show and share this episode with a friend. Got lots of incredible guests coming up in 2023, and I'm looking forward to every single one of them. God bless you. We'll see you soon on Living the Call.